You are listening to the Social Sport Podcast. I'm your host, Emma Zimmerman, and this show is a member of the Sidious Mag Podcast Network. On Social Sport, I feature stories and conversations with endurance athletes of all types committed to fostering social change. The athletes that I speak with are climate change activists, mental health advocates, promoters of more inclusive outdoor spaces, and much more. But what ties all of these athletes together is that they each explore the connection between sport and activism in their lives. This conversation is with Aubrey Wall. Aubrey is a former synchronized swimmer, a triathlete, and most importantly, the founder of Training for Body Acceptance. Through Training for Body Acceptance, Aubrey teaches clients to unlearn diet culture, discover food freedom, and build an empowered self-image. Aubrey speaks so openly about her own eating disorder that she experienced as a competitive athlete and how she wants to use that experience to help other people. We also talk about some of the shortcomings in the body acceptance space, including the predominant focus on cisgender white women. And I appreciate Aubrey's thoughts on how she and other professionals can make the body acceptance space more inclusive. Please enjoy this important conversation with Aubrey Wall. Hi, Aubrey. Welcome to Social Sport. I'm so excited for this conversation today. Yeah, me too. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. Of course. Can you start off by telling people who you are and what you're passionate about and then where I'm finding you today? Yeah. So my name is Aubrey Wall and ooh, what am I passionate about? I'm passionate about so much, but I'm passionate about helping individuals shift their relationship with food movement and their bodies. I was a competitive athlete for most of my life and I've found that, you know, growing up in that space, a lot of people need help in that. And not only athletes, as I've continued my work, I've found more and more people need that help, not just athletes. So that's what I'm passionate about. And I am currently located in Bozeman, Montana. Amazing. So yeah, we actually uh, connected originally through your friend Vanessa, who was also on the podcast. And I remember saying to her that I was really jealous she was in Bozeman because it's one of my favorite places in this country. So I'm equally jealous of you right now. It sounds like an amazing place to be right now. Yeah. Although I'm not sure how are the the fires out there. It's actually, we got really lucky this year. So we had about a week of smoke that blew in from the West Coast. And we actually had a fire really close to where I live. It was maybe 10 miles away from where I live. So that burned for a little while and it got a little smoky for about a week or a week and a half. But Currently, the air is super, super clean. It's a beautiful day here. We're having actual fall weather, which is very nice. That must be really nice and refreshing in lots of different ways. Scary, scary things happening out there with this world that we live in. But we will get to more centered in the topic of this podcast. We don't need to talk about all the scary things that are happening in this country or this world. And we'll start with with your background, you mentioned you were a competitive athlete. I know you were a synchronized swimmer. 
And I'll be honest, I know very little about the culture uh, behind synchronized swimming, competitive synchronized swimming, and the sport in general. So I just love to know a little bit more about what that sport looks like in a competitive sphere. Yeah, it's synchronized swimming, in my opinion, is one of the more difficult sports that exists in the world. It's And the reason I say that is because it's a combination of so many different things. So it's endurance, it's strength, it's flexibility, it's power, it's so much. And there's so much that goes into the sport, yet the goal of the sport is to make it look easy while you're doing it. So you're doing all these really difficult things, but trying to make it look easy while you do it. So I would say in in some ways it's very similar to maybe gymnastics is a good comparison but the way i like to kind of frame it for people is like if you're a gymnast or if you're a runner maybe it's like you doing part of your routine while holding your breath or if you're a track athlete running a 200 holding your breath and then running a 200 while you breathe and then running a 200 while you hold your breath it's kind of similar to that so it's a really cool sport but very difficult and very complex and I was in the sport since I was six years old is when I started swimming synchronized swimming so I swam for 13 years and then I actually coached I was the head coach of the local synchronized swimming team here in Bozeman for seven years after I stopped swimming so I spent 20 of 20 years of my life in the sport in some way or another and I would say the culture of synchro is pretty comparable to some, you know, the culture of dance or gymnastics, it can be very aesthetic based. So most synchronized swimmers that are competing at a very high level look very similar and have very similar body types. And you'll see that if you watch, you know, the Olympics, if you watch synchronized swimming in the Olympics or on the national level, you'll see that most synchronized swimmers appear to be in a certain body type and look a certain way. And I mean, it makes sense given that, you know, you're performing in a bathing suit all of the time. So it is very, it's perceived to be very important the way you look to be successful in the sport. I'm happy that you highlighted that idea of the aesthetic quality of it and how important that is because you know, in, in so many endurance sports that are not aesthetic, I'm thinking about like track, you mentioned track, distance running, uh, swimming, uh, triathlon, all of those. Yes, there, there is a big culture of eating disorders, but it's less focused on the aesthetic because you're not being judged by how your body looks. Like you're, you know, your place when you cross the finish line does not depend on how your body looks. However, I think that sports like gymnastics, we talk a lot about the negative culture and the toxicity in that because of the aesthetic quality. But in my experience, we don't talk so much about synchronized swimming, even though I'm hearing from you and what I've recently been learning is that synchronized swimming also has that culture. Why do you think it's less talked about or is it less talked about? Maybe I'm just less educated about it. Sure. I think that the subject of eating disorders and kind of just toxic or not, maybe not toxic is the right word, but unrealistic expectations of appearance within synchronized swimming or in a lot of judge 
based sports. So like scoring based sports, like you said, like gymnastics or dance or synchronized swimming, you know, I don't think that that is talked about a lot at all. And, and across most sports, I think that it's kind of, you know, if you're performing well, it's fine. And that's like the end of the conversation, at least that that was a lot of the experience that I had um, as I developed my eating disorder in synchronized swimming. I swam, I swam on a really competitive collegiate team my freshman year of college. And I was, you know, throughout my synchronized swimming career, I worked my ass off. Hopefully it's okay that I curse a little bit, but totally. I, worked, yeah. I worked super hard and I was always kind of a mediocre athlete. You know, I was, I was, pretty good, but not exceptional by any means. And so I think that when I moved into, you know, my collegiate team, I felt that a lot and that insecurity kind of manifested in different ways. But what I was going to say about my collegiate team is that there was a huge number of athletes on my collegiate team that struggled with eating disorders Mm -hmm. and it was never really talked about and I didn't know that that many people had struggled until one of my teammates opened up to me about her eating disorder and told me that other people on the team had really struggled with that because our coaches never talked about it no one none of our trainers none of our coaches none of our nutrition consultant people that we worked with like none of them talked about it it was very healthist driven when we talked about food and very just kind of like like I said if you're performing well it doesn't matter like we don't talk about that so I think that that culture of kind of it's not an issue until it's a really big issue is really problematic I'm nodding my head because I think that culture of silence is so common in in many different sports. And it's always interesting to me when I hear about a different sport that I am less familiar with, less educated on, where that culture of silence around mental health struggles, and in this case, eating disorders, is so paramount. So that's, yeah, that's really striking. And I think something that a lot of athletes can relate to at the collegiate level. And I know you you speak pretty openly about your own experience with an eating disorder. I'd love to hear more about how and when that manifested. Yeah, yeah, of course. I'm happy to talk about it. <laughs> My senior year of high school, I moved away from home to swim on a more competitive synchronized swimming team because I had aspirations to go away on scholarship to college for a synchro. And the team I was swimming on in Bozeman was, we were good, you know, we were pretty good, but we didn't have access to a lot of resources. And so I really wanted to kind of hone my skills and be able to compete at a little bit higher level in hopes of that increasing my probability of getting a scholarship. And so I moved to Denver my senior year of high school and I lived with a host family and transferred to a different school my senior year, finished high school out there, swam on a new team. And during that time, I, you know, experienced some body changes as most people do when they leave home, right? Most people experience it when they leave for college, but mine was a year, (laughs) a year premature because I was away from home. Mm -hmm. And, you know, those body changes are very normal, right? Like we're experiencing a lot of stress in that time and things are kind of shifting for us. And I think that 
that's so normal, but it's so stigmatized in a negative way. And so when it happened for me, you know, I didn't think all that much of it until people made comments about it. My parents included, um, my, you know, some of my swim coaches made comments about it. And that was really hard for me because I'm very much seek to please people. I'm a people pleaser. I'm a perfectionist. I have, you know, all of those tendencies that are so common among highly competitive athletes and also a lot of times people who develop eating disorders. I just so, want to interject quickly and ask, are, were those comments completely negative comments? What, what were the nature of those comments? Yeah, they were, they were mostly negative. I wouldn't say that they were like mean necessarily, but it was made clear to me that my body changes were something that needed to be fixed, basically. Um, that, you know, it wasn't okay that this was happening. Um, but yeah, so that, that was really hard for me. Um, because, you know, we are human, we want approval from people, especially the people that we care about. And so when that disapproval was expressed, it kind of had a negative impact on me and my, my, headspace around it, I guess you could say. And so I, what started out as very healthy and normal and just, you know, trying to make some shifts in how I was eating, moving my body a little bit more. It never was compulsive or restrictive for a period of time. And then when I went away to college, and like I said, I had a lot of insecurity around my position on the team, my status as an athlete, I kind of started to lose control a little bit and it's kind of manifested about halfway through the season. I started restricting my food and started getting a little bit weirder about what I was eating. And then when the season ended and I didn't have structured training sessions with my team, I didn't have people that I was around all the time. That's when things got really bad and I was really not eating enough. I was really ex over exercising a lot. And, um, so that's kind of the trajectory that it took and it actually prompted me to leave school after my freshman year of college. And I moved back home to Bozeman. I transferred to Montana state university to finish my degree and just wanted to be in an environment that felt a little bit safer. Uh, to kind of reprioritize my health, which did not happen right away. Full disclosure, it was, it took me a long time to get to the point where I was actually ready to make a change and shift that. But it, that was the kind of, that's where it led me. Well, I want to thank you for, for being so open about sharing that story because it's something that so many people, athletes and non-athletes, can relate to. And just hearing so many little pieces of it that come up, I'm like, yes, mm -hmm. like I, you know, knowing so much about eating disorders, I, you can see like little patterns and, and things that are so common, although there are nuances in everyone's story. And one thing that you talked about is that you wanted to feel safer and I'm just really stuck on this idea of the, the culture in which your eating disorder developed was really your, your senior year of high school. And this intensity and this, these negative comments around your body, even when negativity around your body didn't necessarily exist in your brain, 
when I think of seniors in high school, they just seem so young and they are at an age where they are so, so meldable. That sounds negative. That sounds weird, but, but it's true. And, and, and I'm curious about that, that feeling of, of safety. I'd love to dive into that a little more. Did you recognize that when you were at that age, like that this is not a safe environment? I'm, I'm spiraling into a place that isn't safe or did it take longer? That's a good question. I think I realized it, but on a subconscious level, like I don't think it was a conscious decision of I feel unsafe here, so I need to go somewhere that is safe. I think it was just like, I know I have a problem right now mm-hmm. and I know that if I come back here, it's going to get very bad. And I didn't want to put myself in that position. I just wanted to be in a place where I felt like I had a little bit more opportunity to heal that. Like I said, it took a lot longer than, you know, you would, you know, your brain is like, oh, if I just change the stimulus, everything's going to change and I'm going to get better, which is totally not realistic and it doesn't work. But I do think that being in that environment that felt safer allowed me to eventually pursue my recovery in a way that was felt comfortable for me. So you eventually went into intensive outpatient treatment could you uh, dive a little bit into that experience and you're thinking about that what comes to mind yeah so like i said i'm after i moved back home it took me a couple years to actually get to a place where i was like oh okay now i'm actually ready to get better because i kind of like as with most mental health disorders or addictions you kind of have to get to a place where it's like rock bottom is what a lot of people call it and I don't know if I ever hit that place necessarily but I was going to therapy for a couple years and my eventually my therapist basically told me you're not getting better and it doesn't appear that you're really committed to getting better so you know we're starting this intensive outpatient program and if you don't want to go into that, it's going to get to a point where we're going to have to send you to inpatient, which is hospitalization. And I was really not willing to do that. I really didn't want to go into a hospitalization program. I didn't want to take time off of school. I didn't want to move away from home, which at that point, my parents were no longer living in Bozeman, but I just didn't want to leave Bozeman. I didn't want to have to leave my safe environment, right? And so I went to the intensive outpatient program, which essentially, for those who aren't familiar with that, it is a program that is, you know, like two steps down from full hospitalization. So there's hospitalization, there's partial hospitalization, and then there's intensive outpatient programs, which you basically do 10 to 15 hours of therapy a week in different forms. So that can be meeting with your one-on-one counselor, it can be group therapy, it can be nutrition therapy, it can be a whole host of things. All of those things I did during that time. And I was in there for about, I want to say it was like six to eight months. It's kind of blurry, the timeline, but it was, you know, it saved my life. That's for sure. Mm -hmm. 
Yeah, I, that's, I mean, that's just so strong and, and so emotional. And the idea that you recognize that it, it saved your life is, is really beautiful and also upsetting and striking because I, I know it's such a common illness that isn't talked about enough. And I know that on your website, if you don't mind, I'm going to quote because there's something that I found pretty striking. You said, after finishing my recovery program, I noticed there was a major lack of guidance and community helping me navigate the world post-recovery. Could you yeah. tell me a little bit more about that and, and what that experience and that difficulty was after this treatment period? Yeah. So this is a, <laughs> this is a very complicated subject. I could go down a really big rabbit hole with this. Oh, totally. <laughs> I think that there is, I think that the way that the medical community currently diagnoses eating disorders can be really problematic because it ignores a lot of people who don't look like the typical eating disorder patient. And so I think that that, as a consequence of that, the lines between eating disorder, disordered eating, healthy, it's all really blurry. And I think that when I left my eating disorder treatment, I was, you know, quote unquote, healthy or recovered. I was at a restored weight, whatever that means. Right. But I still, I worked through a lot of like my really deeply rooted, like anorexic behaviors. But when I left, I was still really engaging in a lot of disordered behavior. And, you know, I was like, well, this is, I'm being healthy. Like, this is healthy, right? And I did it for several years after I left my eating disorder recovery. I was doing different diets. I was counting macros. I was doing vegetarianism because of XYZ thing. I was, you know, doing all these weird disordered things. And, you know, I think that you can have, I think that you can subscribe to certain ways of eating while being healthy and doing it for the right reasons, right? Where it's like, it makes me feel good. Like it's really true to who you are, but a lot of people don't do it for that reason. A lot of people do it because they want to look a certain way or they want to maintain a certain weight or, you know, they want to, be the perfect athlete, for example. Like there's so many other reasons why people do these things. And I think it's really hard to find guidance on, oh, this is not healthy. Like no wonder I'm miserable, <laughs> you know what I mean? And so I think that just the line is really blurred between what is an eating disorder and what is disordered eating. And there's not a whole lot of support and information and guidance around what disordered eating is and the consequences it has. Yeah, Aubrey, you can probably see that I'm like scribbling a mile a minute because every you're saying so many things that I'm like, I could go off on tangents on this so important as someone who also struggled with an eating disorder when I was younger. So many things that you're saying I think are so important and are not talked about enough. And one of them is this idea of focusing on physical appearance and this idea of like being done with treatment and focusing on these tangible behaviors and then someone is healthy after they get rid of that and, and once their weight is restored if they you know started off in a, a smaller body or if they had lost weight 
And in reality, it's it's a mental illness. <laughs> so it's it's not like like those thoughts oftentimes remain, almost always I think remain. And maybe you're in a better place, but you might not be entirely healthy. And the other thing that you you said is you talked about the ways in which these these societal cultural diet culture things such as counting macros and micros and just all sorts of of diets are really a way in which eating or eating disorders or disordered eating are normalized and i think that's another thing that we don't talk about enough and it's really hard for someone in recovery to be thrown into that society and that culture of normalized eating disorders in my opinion yeah totally and I totally stumbled my way through figuring this out and it was so hard. I mean, you know, it's, yeah, maybe I'm weight restored. Maybe I'm technically eating enough, but like I'm manipulating my food. I'm constantly thinking about it. You know, I'm just like obsessing over it all of the time. And there is that is still a form of an eating disorder. Maybe not as severe, but disordered eating is a real thing. And I think, like you said, it's so normalized and people assume like that's the way it has to be for you to be healthy. And I just, I have so much compassion for people that are going through that because I wasted so much time and so much of my energy on the way I was eating and the way I was exercising for so long. And it's really, really sad because like I said, people assume it's normal and this is how it has to be. And this is how it always has to be. And it doesn't, and there's a better way, but how are you supposed to know that when no one's talking about it, there's no resources to help you figure it out, you know, and that's, just it's so hard and that's why I do the work I do because I spent so much time trying to figure it out for myself and realized that like you know like I said on my website there's not a lot of resources to help people navigate society and what it looks like to actually have a healthy relationship with food in your body and exercise or movement or whatever you want to call it and it's just hard and I don't want people to have to struggle with it for as long as I did and without any help like I did I mean it's just there's it doesn't have to be that way so there are not a lot of resources and you went ahead and created some and you used your own experience to help other people so I'd love to know about that journey of of getting from your own experience of recovery to wanting to help others with similar experiences Yeah. So it's really funny because I think that 2020 has been such a weird year for so many people, myself included. (laughs) Really? Uh, Didn't notice. Yeah. Yeah, It's been a totally normal year. What are you talking about? Yeah. So I don't really know where to start with this, but basically at the beginning of COVID, I lost two jobs and I was like, uh, now what? Um, you know, I spent a few weeks feeling sad for myself and just, you know, applying for jobs, but feeling really like bummed out and sad. I was applying for all these jobs when I knew most of them weren't going to go anywhere. I wasn't really that excited about any of them. And 
I've always had an entrepreneurial persuasion. I've always wanted to kind of start my own business and do my own thing, but I never could figure out what I wanted to do. But over the course of many years, I've shared my story about my eating disorder and everything that I went through on social media. And I found that every time I shared about my experience, people would come to me and, you know, say, you're so brave. Thank you so much for sharing. Um, I had no idea you're going through this or, you know, I resonate with so much that you say. And I think that I started to realize that maybe that was my calling, that working in that space was really my calling because to me, it never felt that brave to talk about it because it was just me sharing my story. And I feel that my experience with an eating disorder and all the work that I've done after that is the reason I had that experience is to share it and to help other people and to destigmatize the conversation around food and body image and all of those things. And so it never felt that brave to me, but the fact that other people were saying to me, I wish more people were talking about this was a sign that I needed to actually pursue work in this space. So yeah, so I decided to just like dive in head first and start my own business. And I hired a business coach and she kind of guided me and kind of nudged me in the direction of building out a course and because that was something that I always wanted to do I've always really enjoyed educating people and just supporting and guiding and you know I've I actually thought about going into education for a long time so I think that this was kind of a nice combination of both of those things and yeah so I built out a six-week course I built the whole curriculum from scratch and it covers everything from diet culture social media, um, health at every size, all of these things that I wish I would have known about to intuitive eating and going through the principles of intuitive eating. And within the curriculum, there's exercises to help you kind of integrate that into your life and kind of really think about the ways that you've been affected by diet culture and how your belief systems around who you are and what you eat and why you eat what you eat how that has been affected by society at large and how you can make shifts and to have a more, I hate using the word healthy because I think it's oftentimes mm -hmm. misconstrued, but a healthy, a relationship with food movement and your body in a way that's healthy to you. One thing that you talked about is how you didn't feel like it was brave of you to share your story. And well, well, first of all, I want to say that that I think it's brave and it's brave because it is a super stigmatized topic and a super misunderstood topic. I think that the general public doesn't quite understand eating disorders and how they are mental illnesses. Um, so in that sense, it is extremely brave to, to fight against that stigma. But but at the same time, I, I understand that battle of thinking, well, I, I share these words, but but what's the next step? How can I translate words to some sort of action that is really helping other people in this tangible way? So it's really interesting how you kind of translated those words into this business. So I'd love to break down a little bit more about what this business is. So if you could explain what exactly is a body acceptance coach as you are and what does a body acceptance coach do on the day-to-day? -day? Yeah. 
a body acceptance coach, it's really loose to be honest, because it's, there's not a lot of them out there. And so the way that I define a body acceptance coach is someone who can help guide you on healing your relationship with food, movement, and your body. And that can take a variety of forms. Like I said, I have a six-week course that I run, but I also offer one-on-one coaching. And with one-on-one coaching, it's just much more tailored to what the individual needs and what that looks like for them. Because I, my job as a coach is to meet my clients where they are and not have any assumptions about what they've been through and what they are going through. And so I think that a lot of my work is really, it's really adaptable and really kind of shifts and evolves depending on who I'm working with, what space I'm working in, and who my clients are in any given course, right? Because each course round is going to have a different group of people that are going to have different experiences and be going through something different. So it's really adaptable and I have to really evolve a lot and be really open to new information and new experiences that people have had and all of that. So it's a very fluid thing. And sorry, what was your second question? Uh, What do you do on on the day-to-day? Oh, yeah. What does it look like? Yeah, daily stuff. Right now, I'm trying to build up my one-on-one clientele. So I don't cur- I'm not currently working with any clients one-on-one. I put a lot of energy and focus into building my six-week course because like I said, I built it from scratch. So it took a lot of time and energy to do that. And so I just wrapped up the first round of my course and I'm in the enrollment phase of the second round of my course, but I'm also looking to expand into my one-on-one. So I'm doing a lot of that. I do a lot of social media marketing too, because that's where a lot of my audience is. And that's where I've had the most luck reaching new people and just kind of, like I said, destigmatizing the conversation around this, because the more we talk about it, the more normal it becomes to talk about it. And in doing so, I hope that I make other people feel safe talking about it, maybe not in a public space, but maybe with me, maybe with their family, whatever shape that takes. I just want it to feel less scary for people to open up about conversations and topics like this, ultimately. Why do you think the topic of eating disorders is so stigmatized? I know that's such a big question, but I'm, I'm curious what, whether you can cite like any roots of that. Yeah, I don't know. I've thought about this question a lot, just kind of like in the work that I do. And mm-hmm. I'm like, why is this such an issue for people? But I think that, you know, mental health stuff is stigmatized no matter what it is. And we're just kind of getting to a point with our generation that it's becoming less stigmatized. You know, people are more open to talking about going to therapy or what they're struggling with. For some reason, I do feel like eating disorders are oftentimes more stigmatized than other mental health disorders. And I don't know why, but I think that maybe some of it comes from the fact that a lot of people feel A lot of people who have struggled with eating disorders feel that that disorder is perceived as something that is very narcissistic and vain. 
and not actually a mental health disorder. So I think that a lot of people feel that it's, you know, that health disorder is something that is, I want to look a certain way and I want to, you know, that's what it's all based in. It's like this me, 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 vain, I want to look good, whatever. But the problem is, is that eating disorders are really, really complex. And maybe some eating disorders start out that way, but they do not end up that way. At the end of the day, an eating disorder is not about, I want to look good. It's about a lot more than that. And I think that it's just like you said, they're really misunderstood. And as a consequence of that, people who have struggled with them don't want to talk about them because they feel like they'll be misunderstood too. Mm -hmm. So much, so much in there. Yes. And yeah, I think people have a hard time wrapping their, their head around how eating disorders aren't choices and how it becomes this really, this mental obsession, this mental trap that's so hard to get out of. And in a lot of ways becomes very removed from the actual body. It's very much in your head. And that's something we can go way into. And maybe I'll, I'll leave some links in the show notes because I don't even think we can really get that deep into that in the time that we have. But I want to ask, I know you focus on body acceptance. You use the term body acceptance in your business. Why body acceptance versus body positivity, which is another term I hear a lot. I think that body acceptance... Body acceptance to me feels a bit more inclusive because I think that people hear body positivity and they're like, how am I supposed to feel positive about my body when I hate it? And it's kind of like, it feels really out there and like woo woo and kind of like, if you are in a place where you are really unhappy in your body, someone telling you like, yeah, body positivity, it's like how am I going to get to that? Like I'm here and how the heck am I going to get to that? And body acceptance to me is, feels a little bit safer because I think to a lot of people accepting your body versus being positive about your body feels a lot more attainable. And so in my work, I view body acceptance as a stepping stone to body confidence or body positivity, because you can't go from negative body image to a confident body image like that, like with a snap of a finger. It's you have to, there's steps in between that and body acceptance can be a platform upon which you build that positive body image. But I think that using the term body positivity can be really, just like eating disorders, really misunderstood and feel really scary and unattainable to a lot of people. I love that answer. And I completely agree. I often find that body positive content is like super overwhelming and seems really unrealistic and it's thrown at us everywhere on the internet. And talking about the internet, another thing that I often find in the body acceptance, body positivity space in social media, et cetera, is I think it often caters to white cisgender maybe even small-bodied people. It caters to this very small group in society. Well, first of all, is that true? Do you think that is an accurate thought or that I'm having? I think that is very accurate. And it's a, that's a pretty large criticism of 
the body positive movement and all of that. And I do think it's really true. And it's, it's a hard subject to deal with because I am a white cisgender female living in a small body and having that privilege and just knowing that I, I fall into all of those categories can, it's something that I've definitely struggled with in my work and feeling like, am I taking up space that maybe someone else could be filling? How do we go about creating a more inclusive body acceptance, body positivity, whatever you call it, a more inclusive space? Yeah. So yeah, like I said, this is something that I've really struggled with because I am a small bodied white female and you know, I am a privileged person because of all of those things. And I don't want to be taking the space away from anybody else, but I do have this platform and I do have this voice and people are listening to me. And so one thing that I've really tried to do is support voices that are not the typical, you know, voices that fall into this category. There's several accounts that I follow on social media. Um, Lauren Lavelle is one. Tiffany Ima is another one. You know, just supporting and raising the voices of non-white or non-cisgender people who are doing the same work that I am is really important to me. And I do that in my course as well. I refer a lot of my course members to their accounts and to accounts that are of different voices or people that live in different body sizes and all of that, because I think that that is a really important part of this movement. It can't be primarily dictated by small bodied white women because historically it really has been. And though I am one, and I do think that I have a place in this space, I don't think I have the only place in this space. I think that's a really important answer. And I think just the concept of privilege is there. You know, you can't hide from privilege. We have the privileges that we we have, and it comes down to recognizing them and then recognizing how we can use that privilege because it's not it's not going to go away it, it's there and so then you have to recognize it and use it and so i really appreciate that answer yeah and another thing that i am doing with my work because i do feel that supporting causes that are supporting these underprivileged communities or these communities that historically have had less of a voice is very very important to me so with this round of my course that I'm currently enrolling people in I'm donating $50 of each course registration to Project HEAL they actually are doing they're creating a BIPOC treatment center and so I'm donating money to that cause because I think that it's really important to support the community that gave me so much. So that organization in particular works to provide eating disorder treatment to underprivileged communities. And so I want to give back, like that's part of my work. And my hope is that also down the road, I can give scholarships to people of color who don't have the means to invest in something like this when, you know, they really need it. And so I have a lot of ideas of how my own company can give back to these causes because being socially aware and giving back in that way is really, really important to me. 
I love that. And I love Project Heal. They're an incredible organization. If, you, if you're listening to this and you don't already, you should go follow their social media, their Instagram feed, and check out their website. They're doing some really incredible work to provide folks who, for whatever reasons, for financial barriers and other barriers, aren't able to access eating disorder treatment. And so thank you for, uh, for mentioning them. They're an incredible organization. Yeah. Yeah. They're really wonderful. And I'm really excited that my work is giving me the ability to give back to them because they're doing a lot of work that really needs to be done. Totally. So I'd love to know, Aubrey, what is your relationship with sport like now? (laughs) That's a great question. And it is evolving. (laughs) As, As it always is for most people. Always, always. Yeah. So after I left my recovery program and kind of was figuring out what life was like as a quote unquote recovered person, I started racing triathlon and I got into long distance triathlon. So primarily the half iron and Ironman distance triathlon. And I raced, I have raced triathlon for five years, six years now. And It's been amazing. I love the sport. I really do. And it was a really critical component in my healing from my eating disorder. I think it gave me a space in which movement was a little bit more, I was pursuing movement for the right reasons, um, more for joy and excitement rather than body change. And I was pursuing going pro as a trying to race professionally but this year with having space from racing and just taking a pause from everything I've definitely been reassessing what my relationship with triathlon will look like moving forward and if I still want to pursue racing professionally and if I do what does that look like because the last season in particular I was really hard on myself about how I was performing. And I have to really be careful with that kind of stuff because because of my background and because of who I am as a person, I have to be really aware of why I'm doing something. And I am a little worried that I started doing triathlon for the, the wrong reasons. Not, not that I started doing triathlon, but that I continued racing with the intensity that I was for reasons that were no longer serving me. And so I'm kind of in an evaluation phase of, of my relationship with sport, which is really, really hard and scary and good and freeing, but it's just, it's just a weird, weird place to be in for sure. Okay. I love that evaluation phase. I think so many athletes need that. And also I think it's just important. I mean, on the topic of athletes and eating disorders, I think it's really important to recognize that even though you might be quote unquote recovered, that still a lot of times these thoughts, they linger. It might even linger for the rest of your life. And so it's really important, I think, for athletes who have struggled with mental health, specifically eating disorders, to give themselves space to evaluate maybe constantly. And so that's super, super important. And I'm happy that you're taking the time to do that. Yeah, it's been really hard. And I'm just going to warn any athlete out there that if you are ever in a phase of life like this, it is hard and it is scary to do this, but it's really, really important because 
you'll just end up miserable if you keep pushing on something that maybe isn't serving you in the best of ways. And it's been kind of an existential crisis is what I would Mm. describe it as because I've been a competitive athlete my entire life, like since I was six years old. So moving away from that and, you know, I'll probably always race in some capacity or another, whether it's Ironman or whether it's mountain biking or something different. I think I'll always race because I really like the competition aspect and I like having something to work towards, but what the goal of that is, is changing all the time. And, you know, maybe it's still going to be racing pro, maybe it's not. But I think that giving yourself the space to let go of things that you've held on to for a really long time, because they're maybe no longer serving you in the same ways is really important, even if it's really scary. (laughs) And it's rewarding. You know, it might not always seem that way, but I think it's so rewarding at the end of the day. Totally. Because at the end of the day, if you give yourself the space to do that, you know that you are honoring your needs and not anybody else's. You are considering yourself and what makes you happy and what's going to serve you forever. And that's what's most important. Yeah, 100%. So we are going to get a little rapid fiery as we wrap up this podcast and a little bit light. First question is what, or sorry, what is your favorite non-sport activity? Favorite non-sport activity. Oh, that's really hard. I do a lot of sports. Um, (laughs) I really like to read books. I've turned into a huge reader this year, which has been fun. And also I love to play with my dog, Hank. What type of dog is Hank? He's a French Brittany, so he's a little bird hunting dog. He's adorable. Aww. <laughs> I think we need more Hank content. I haven't seen enough on your Instagram okay. page. <laughs> I'll get on that. Yes. Okay. Your fans or me want more Hank content. Okay. I you also mentioned <laughs> awesome. You also mentioned reading. What is your favorite book that you've read recently? Oh man, you are a badass at making money for sure. Ooh, awesome. I haven't read that one. Cool. I'll put that in the show notes. Jen, Jen Sincero. She's okay. amazing. Awesome. What is your favorite spot in the beautiful town of Bozeman, Montana? Favorite spot? Like restaurant or outdoor spot? or Anything. Any? Anywhere. Oh, man. Um, probably on top of the Bridger Ridge. It's beautiful up there. Cool. I think I was up there when I, when I visited. Like, gorgeous view. Yeah. yeah. Awesome. So I saw on your Instagram that you are really good at charcuterie boards. I saw a really epic picture. (laughs) And so I'm curious, maybe for my own involvement more than anything, what is the most essential item to put on a charcuterie board? Well, besides all the charcuterie, obviously, um, I would say like a really nice thing to put on there is apple slices. Ooh, yeah, you need a little sweet. You need a little sweet in there. Totally. Being crispy. Yeah. So the last question I have for you today, Aubrey, is why is sport a powerful platform for social change? Ooh, that's a deep question. Um, So sport in my life has always been an opportunity to challenge and expand myself and who I am and what I'm capable of and what I believe about myself, about the world, you know, all the things. And I think that it can be expanded larger than that. I think sport can be leveraged to 
have that same impact on the world as a whole as a way to expand what's capable and really just challenge norms and give new people space to believe that they're capable of more. And that's exactly what you're doing. I love the work that you're doing to challenge norms and to show people that they are capable of more. I think it's a really important niche that you're occupying. So I want to thank you. I'm, I'm excited because it's really just starting off and I can't wait to see how it grows. Yes, this is just the beginning. I have so, so many goals and ideas of things that I want to do. So yeah, I, you know, if you're listening to this and you resonated with anything I said, like Emma said, this is just the beginning. So, you know, would love to have you follow along and watch, watch and contribute any ideas that you have for ways that I can make an impact. So where can folks go if they want to follow along and maybe learn more about the work that you're doing? Yeah. So you can follow me on Instagram. It's just my name at Aubrey wall. That's my main platform. I'm also on Facebook and I share a lot of stuff there, but my main platform is Instagram. And I also have a website, which is trainingforbodyacceptance.com. And full disclosure, it will be going undergoing a major overhaul in the next few months. So what you see now is not what will be there come the beginning of 2021, but it will give you a better idea of who I am and the work that I'm currently doing and why. Great. Thank you so much, Aubrey. This has been an awesome conversation. Yeah. Thanks so much, Emma. This was awesome. Thank you for listening to this episode of Social Sport. Eating disorders, negative body image, and mental health struggles in general are just so evident in many endurance sport communities, and Aubrey is doing such crucial work to make changes in this space. If you want to learn more about Aubrey's work, make sure to check out trainingforbodyacceptance.com. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, let me know. Drop me a message on Instagram at socialsportpod. I always appreciate hearing from anyone who listens to the show. And please, please, please subscribe to Social Sport and leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts. That is by far and away the best way for me to grow the show. Thank you so much for listening today. Keep sporting and keep resisting.